Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. So while the kids are making their way, I'll just uh, say incidentally that the title was all James' idea. I love it. Take this job and love it. It's a series on work and vocation. And would you agree with me, James? I mean, there's just no way to cover. The more we're studying this, right, it's just there's so much out there. Uh, and uh, so th- today's message, and I, I assume that all the messages in this series are, I hope they're going to be accurate for what they are, but just know, I'll tell you right now, they're going to be incomplete, right? So I'll try to make the, the information I give good and quality. I'm just saying right now, in its scope, there's no way. I'm going to say something where you're like, man, I'd like 10 more minutes on that or 15 more minutes on that. It's just not going to be possible. But throughout the series, hopefully we'll hit on different things. I'm also taking another page out of Pastor James's book. And at, at my church, I'm doing interviews as well with people that work. And here's why. And you heard James say this last week in his message. He has a leg up on me in preaching about work. Because he actually has a job. And no matter how hard I try, I lose, don't I, a little bit of moral authority when I'm like, you guys know how hard it is on the grind? I mean, I, I guess... Uh, what it's like to be surrounded by lost people, I, I kind of work, you know, and pray and like study sermons and meet mostly with Christians. My commute is like a 10 minute walk, you know, some people are driving hours and hours and I'm like, I have read so much about what you're going through, <laughs> you know, um, the good thing is that the scriptures have so much to say that uh, even without the moral authority and even with just announcing up front, I don't know exactly what you're going through. But that's true of every sermon. And it's not possible to be relevant in everybody's experience because you've experienced it. But on the other hand, if you dig the wells deep enough, relevance becomes irrelevant. That the things that touch on the deepest parts of who we are as humans in terms of work and vocation, God's going to have something to say for you. If you weren't here last week, I have to allow. Some of you are like, whoa, what is happening? I just came here and there's this McDonald's looking logo up here. Like, what? What's happening? What have I walked in on? So we're in part two on a series on vocation and work. Pastor James preached last week. Grab the podcast. That's what I do when I'm not here. And you can listen to it. Just go to their website. Check it out. And if, if you missed it, he set up basically this introduction, which was really depressing, about how we're chronically angry. But the thing that stuck out for me, if you weren't here last week, was when Pastor James said, something's gone wrong from when the time you were a little kid, the way your eyes lit up when somebody asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do when you grow up? There was something magical and powerful about that. And you were ready. I mean, and and you ask my kids and stuff doesn't even make sense. They're like a Lego creating ballerina cop. I'm like, well, obvi. I mean, (laughs) makes sense. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to be a professional golfer president or whatever. But you understand? Like, uh, 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 th- these things that, uh, that, but it was awesome. And somewhere along the line, and the, the place where it went, somewhere along the line, you realize, but I also have to be realistic. And I love art history, and I just, but I want a job. So how do I, how do I make what I love to do, my vocation, the thing I feel called to do, but I also got to pay bills. I got to make a paycheck. And suddenly you were like, maybe I'm not really gifted for this line of work, but man, it pays well. And so I, I guess I'll just, you know, go into finance or I'll go into medicine or I'll go into whatever it is when my heart is really in uh, ballerina Lego cop. So what, what happened? Something went wrong. And, and last week, I thought James really 
gave an overview of the what of work, and today I want to talk about the why. Why? So I'm going to give you, if you're a note taker, I don't do this often. So if you're, some people have told me, like, I can't take notes. You just, like, get up there and, blah, 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 and it's like, well, here, here's the point. But if you're, like, a note taker, if you would really honestly prefer that you even had a spreadsheet right now, if you, if you think like that, today's your day. I'm going to give you four honest-to-goodness bona fide points. You can even write them down. You can use Roman numerals, Arabic, whatever you like. But you can write down four points. And underneath each point, you can have a little, like, scripture verses. And you can write it. You're, like, perfectly organized. And this is your day. You can't wait to go home and pin it on Pinterest. These are my notes. If that's you, today's your day. So here we go. Point number one. Let's get right to it. Why does God will work? That's what these four points are going to answer. Why does God will work? I want to give credit where credit is due right off the back. And that's uh, uh, Pastor John Piper. Uh, James mentioned last week. Tim Keller. Both these guys have been really helpful. If you want to read more about John Piper's stuff on work, go to desiringgod.org, com, whatever. Google Desiring God, and uh, you'll, you'll see uh, he has a lot of stuff on there in work. And these four points have been uh, greatly influenced by John Piper. So here we go. Why does God will work? The first one is the wordiest. It's the longest. You're going to need the most space on your paper. The rest are pretty short and clear. The first one, I'm just, it's going to be long. <clears throat> God wills work so that when we rely on his power and seek to work with his excellence, we glorify God and are made happy. I'm going to say it again because there's about four points to that. I mean, four parts to that. When God wills work, first of all, uh, it's just like the, the catechism. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see that? Yeah, that's the same for work. When we rely on God's power for our work, our career, vocation, and when we seek his pattern of excellence in what we do, we glorify him and are ourselves made happy. We glorify him and we ourselves are made happy. When we, when we work in such a way that we're relying on his power and in accordance with his pattern of excellence, glorify God and are made happy. Why do we work? To glorify God. And when God is glorified, we are made happy in him. Goes all the way back to the beginning. Goes all the way back to the garden. Each point is going to have its own set of verses. Again, normally I'm a guy. I take one point. I take one scripture and we just drive it home. Today's a little different. You're going to have to write down a couple scriptures underneath this. And the first one, if you're a fast page turner, you can get there. Otherwise, I put them up here on the screen. And would encourage you just to write down the reference. And you can go home and check them out as well. Genesis 1 is where we go back. Where do we see this? It all starts in the beginning. This is before the fall of man. This is in the garden. Then God said, right? So he's made all day one. He spoke light into being. Then he uh, separated water from water. Then made land. Then on day four, sun, moon, stars, and all the planets, right? Day five, he fills the, the uh, uh, waters with the birds of the, uh, the waters of the sky get birds and the, the, the sea gets fish. And day six, he fills the land and then the, 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 the pinnacle of his creation. Then God said, let us make man. If you're just curious about the Trinity and where the doctrine of the triune God comes from, it's pretty much on page one of your scriptures right there. God said, let us, Father, Son, Spirit, in an uh, in eternal three in one. God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And I never noticed this, but right after that, he talks about work. In other words, hey, let's make man in our image. Let, let, let's do this. And you would think to, I don't know, to glorify. 
Father, Son, Spirit. Or, or, I don't know, you would think maybe, let's make man and then just sit back and enjoy. We made these humans. This is awesome. But he gets right into their purpose and he starts with work. They will do what? They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the creatures that crawl on earth. Can you imagine being Adam, being told this? I know that, you know, no doubt, Adam and Eve, but can you imagine being told, you go to God, and uh, God says, you know, i got these commands for you. The first one, uh, you know, rule over the earth and subdue it. Don't you just imagine? What, you mean like control stuff? Yeah, I mean, to this day, in the marriages I know, the guy always has to hold the remote control. Even if you're not doing anything, why? Rule over the earth and subdue it. Like, this is Adam deep inside, you know what I mean? And I just imagine, like, uh, uh, there's Adam and Eve, and Adam's just like, you know, I rule over you, birds of the air, fish of the sea, I am your king. Today, I'm going to ride a porpoise, you know, or whatever, right? And he says, I rule over you, I am the man. Poor Eve's like, you're the only man. Please, like, can we move along, you know? (laughs) You can't help it. Rule over the earth and subdue it. And uh, I've been ruling over the earth lately and subduing it myself. I, ca- I, caught a, I killed a roach yesterday, and I uh, uh, caught a mouse, and I'm thinking it's time to move apartments. Verse 27 says, so that's what he did. God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created the male and female, which lets us know that God does not have a biological gender. He transcends because both man and woman are made in the image of God, giving man and woman equal in their importance to the heart of God. And here we see verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Because I've given you this job to subdue it, so you're going to need a lot of help. So have kids, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Being created in God's image is connected with subduing the earth. What this means is, if you will, God, like, deputizes us. God is in this creative work. He's, he's making something out of chaos. He creates out of nothing, out of the chaos. And then he says, all right, I'm still working, but now I'm going to work through you. Man, woman, go do the work. And he puts him in a garden, not in a wilderness. He puts him in a garden, as in I'm the gardener. I've been cultivating. Now go make something. Make things that are useful, right? Make things that are beautiful. That's what I want you to see. When, when we talk about work, you may say, Rule over the earth and like ruling a bird. This is, this is falconry. Like this isn't a message on work, but this is the Bible's way of talking about. I mean, the, the, the idea of getting a paycheck back then was just, you know, agriculture, uh, not before the fall. But the, the point is, uh, uh, when it talks about subduing the earth, let me give you some simple examples of how you do it. It means, it means take, take lordship in a subordinate lordship. As we, as we come under the lordship of God... We are meant to have dominion over the earth. Shape it. Control it. Put it to good use. I try to think of some examples to make this point clear. That's what work is. And if you, if you go back and listen to James' sermon, you'll hear that over and over again. He's talking about bringing order out of this chaos. So I remember being a boy and my dad, who has a really good sense of humor, uh, very uh, sly but good. And uh, he's not a minister. He, he, uh, we'll come back to dad in, uh, uh, in the next point. But he um, worked very hard and, and, and worked as a quality control manager in a, in a factory that produces foods and things. And he, um, uh, uh, but he, you know, knows the word of God. And I remember being a, a teenager, probably a preteen, and he, he gave me the lawnmower, the push mower, and he gave me, you know, like a tiller and some different things. We lived on an acre of land. I can tell you it's an acre because I had to mow it. 
and, uh, uh, and, and there was this patch that he's a very good gardener, and this one patch had just gotten wild and wooly and uh, never done anything with it. And he said, uh, today, son, uh, you know, we're going to mow this, and, we're, and, and, we're gonna, and everything we there, he meant me, um, you're going to mow all this, you're going to do it. And I asked him, I was like, why? What's the point? It's just, it's just here. I mean, it's nobody, we live out in the country, like nobody's going to see it or whatever. And he said to me, we're going to take dominion over the earth, right? And I didn't know, and, you know, like years later, I'd get the joke. But, uh, but, he, but that, that's what he was doing. And he wanted, to, he wanted to reclaim it. And then we just put grass on it. And it was just part, but that's it. Like it went from wild and woolly to like, no, this is owned. This is cultivated. This is, I've brought meaning out, out of this chaos. Um, some of you can take the chaos of beans and meat and your secret chili powder sauce and your sriracha. Nobody knows it's sriracha, but that's what gives it that kick. You take the chaos of these ingredients and you make chili. And it's famous, right? Some of you take the chaos of whatever's made in pasta primavera and you bring it into order. I don't know, I try to think of... Some of you can take the chaos of American cheese and bread and make a grilled cheese sandwich. And you tell me that that's easy to do. That's not easy to do. I have burned so many grilled cheeses. I don't know how, how to do it. But I'm talking about somebody who can do it right. What are they doing? They're taking the chaos of these ingredients all over and they're making souffle or whatever. Omelets. I'm just hungry. Some of you... There's a guy at my church. This is what I, when I think of this, take dominion over the earth. In other words, many of you are not farmers. Some of you may be gardeners, farmers. But there's a guy in my church, and he does the books. He does it volunteer. He's a, uh, a super accountant, hot shot, works in the city. But just volunteers for us to keep the church books and everything. And when I think about chaos, I think of his drawer, the David drawer. There's this drawer in our church mailbox, and we just dump everything in there. It's got receipts. It's got uh, uh, handwritten notes. It's got the tithe envelopes. And out of the chaos, if it gets that in the drawer, he's able to take all that. And after a few questions and figuring things out, he's able to take that and produce a financial report where we can see what happened. He took the chaos of a shoebox of receipts and data that he needed. Some of you do that at your work. Uh, some of you take the chaos of HTML and Ruby on Rails and you produce whatever it is that you make from that. I guess a website or, a, or a something, a, a computer, or a, a Facebook. You can take the chaos. James, don't we try to take the chaos of a scripture passage and craft and produce a, a sermon? Some of you uh, up here on this stage just now, we saw Steve and uh, others. They can take this guitar right here and from the void of the wire and the wood say, let there be music. And it's good. See? Some of you, I, I, I grew up in West Kentucky and I, I know that there are men and women who took the chaos of the wild Tennessee River and said, we'd like a lake here and built a massive levee, a massive dam. I mean, think, like, who thinks that? I mean, where did that get in? They're sitting there watching a beaver going, oh, I'll bet we could do that. Right? <laughs> and they dammed the Tennessee River in such a way that it gives fresh water to all the inhabitants, myself included, were able to be blessed by this massive reservoir by harnessing the power of the Tennessee River. And we also put a man on the moon. You get the point, right? We're taking dominion over the earth. It's your work. 
And that's why we need work to be fulfilled. James said last week, God is preeminently a worker. We know that because he says he himself rested from his labors. He was working. He is still working around us. The difference between us and that beaver, of course, and and no doubt God gets glory when a beaver works hard, but, you know, lots of creatures work hard. But we can consciously make a moral choice to honor God by relying on him And by working with excellence, by seeing our work as having this value, as bringing order out of chaos in his pattern, but also in his pattern of excellence. And that means very simply something that we all, I think, intrinsically know. That the ditches a Christian digs should be perfectly straight. And the pipe fittings that a Christian fits onto a pipe ought not leak. And a Christian's typing ought to be accurate if we're presenting it. Uh, Our meals ought to be nutritious and attractive. And our surgical incisions ought to be small and leave the least scarring possible. Why? Because we're working in his pattern of excellence. That means we do the best we can. It doesn't mean you have to operate in some superhuman way. God is God, but we rely on his power and we seek to work with his excellence. That we do things well in a conscious reliance on the Lord and a conscious pursuit of excellence, knowing that in all we do, we want him to be glorified. That should help a little bit change the way we look at work. God created you to do creative, joyful, purposeful work. Notice I didn't say gainful. Not yet. That's an important distinction. God created you to do purposeful, meaningful, joyful work. But I didn't say gainful. Not yet. And that's why idleness, you, you, you lose joy. Look at this, uh, look at this passage in, in Ecclesiastes 5. When it talks about idleness. What, what does this mean? Uh, we, we get this. The sleep of the worker is sweet. Whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. What's this verse saying? What's it mean? It means if you're so rich that you have this, uh, you don't work anymore and you're just kind of just heap, you know, idleness and uh, pleasure after pleasure and all this leisure, eventually you realize these, this sort of frivolous leisure leads to a life that does not have as much happiness as someone who works. For the simplest example of this, many of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about because you retired. And what happened when you retired? For, them, for many of the retired people I know, yeah, they took a few months, maybe, you know, a little while, where they were like, yeah, it's good, you know, just kick back and head to Boca, you know, and whatever, right? But eventually, what did you do? What did you do? You went, you went back to work. And it may or may not have been gainful, but we see this in, among retired people. Why? Because we're connecting what the scriptures say, that, that you can only have so much frivolous leisure you, you need meaningful activity, and it may or may not be gainful at that point. If you've worked hard and you have enough retirement, God bless you, that's great. You go back and you do some hobby, you volunteer, you do those things, but you're able to do what you want. I, I mentioned my dad, and uh, I want to uh, mention him just one more time in this message. But both my mom and dad have retired, and both have gone back to work. And uh, my mom taught Latin and French. She was a high school Latin and French teacher. And that's why if you ever see me like, I don't know, end a sentence with a preposition or make some grammar mistake. I'm always like, you know, <laughs> but my, my therapist says I'm going to make progress in that. But, the, the, but the, anyway, she's very uh, linguistically on point. Um, but uh, my dad, as I said, was this quality control manager. And here's a man, uh, and, and both have gone back to work. Mom is now, uh, you know, I, I, 
teaching, uh, there's a Christian school that wanted a Latin teacher, and so she goes and teaches first graders Latin for a couple hours a week. My dad uh, jumped right in, and after, I mean, here's a man, spent 35 years and, and uh, was, a, I mean, influenced nationally. His, his, uh, the, 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 there are quality standards and practices in his specific field of work that he shaped nationally, and he's kind of known in that small industry. Um, uh, and, and he decided when he uh, quit, after a few months of that, that he was going to uh, do... Uh, I think it had to do with our, our, my grandmother living with us at the end of her life. And he realized sometimes elderly people in these nursing homes don't get the kind of nursing care that it, it takes a special person to kind of see. And, and, you know, they get at the end of their life, they can be very grumpy and angry. And so, I mean, he, he felt strongly this could be a place he could make a difference. So he goes back to nursing school. So there he is at community college, Paducah Community College. Here he's this, I mean, he's got like a master's degree. I, I'm trying to explain it. I mean, he's, he's, he's set. He's, he's, he's a powerful career. And there he is in the community college uh, starting work on this nursing degree with 19, 20, and 21-year-old mostly girls. And I said, Dad, what is that like? He says, well, I'm able to give a lot of advice. <laughs> and sure enough, I started hearing these stories. At lunch, he became sort of the go. All right, Fred, what do I do about that? You need to leave that fella. He's no good for you. You need to break up with him. Get your kids out of the trailer park. Girl, get a hold of yourself. Next question. And there's dad just holding court up at PCC. Anyway. When he, well, he got, you know, he got, went to the one. It was just going to be a certified nurse's aide. And then he thought, well, it's just a few more courses. I could become a registered nurse and a few more. And next thing you know, so now he's nursing. And he just kind of picks the days he wants to work when the census is low. At the, I mean, I mean, when the census is high at the hospital. And sometimes we're like, I haven't gone in a while. We need a good plague here in Murray. I'm like, Dad, that's horrifying. Anyway, point of that whole story was he won. We're really proud of him. He won the Nursing Spirit Award at his graduation there. Yeah, for PCC. And as he walked across the stage, they read a little quote that he had written and he said that uh, my first career was for the money but this one's for the love yeah right and so he goes on these medical mission trips he's able to do all this now it's a great story my dad's the man I, hopefully he gets to meet him but here's the thing here's the thing that story is written about many retired people that i know and it's they realize like idleness there's a part of me i i need to work we see before the fall exactly why it's, it's more than just gainful employment. And that's also why we've got to help each other with this. Unemployment. Let's talk about those of you that don't have a job or you've been through that valley of unemployment. Unemployment is not, first and foremost, an economic problem. It is, first and foremost, a theological problem. You see? We need something to occupy us, to allow us to express our creativeness in subduing the earth. And that's why when you talk to unemployed people, they tell you it's not the loss of the paycheck. It's the loss of my sense of dignity, of worth, of, 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 of what do I do with myself? I'm, I'm, I'm not oriented correctly. And yes, that is unhealthy. If all of your self-worth is in your job, to some degree that's unhealthy, fine. But in many ways, that's perfectly healthy. That's exactly how unemployment would feel. We know that, that idleness bring, uh, excessive idleness brings that guilt and futility. And so the first reason, and that's the longest one, and I told you that's the biggest point by far and away, but I wanted you to see the why, that when we rely on his power for work and in accordance for his pattern of excellence, we glorify God, and it is meant to be part of our fulfillment as human beings. It is, you, you, that is a big part of being a fulfilled human being. It's right there in Genesis 1, okay? 
Now, I say all that because that's the one that most people would not have thought of. If I interviewed you, why did God give us work? Why do you go to work? Why? Why? I think you and I would say the same thing. That car don't gas itself, right? I got a three-year-old. He ain't working for rent. Like, you know, it's money. Dollar, dollar bills, y'all. It's like we're going to work for money, right? That is absolutely what we think. Well, here's the thing. You are not a crass, worldly person if you think that. Point number two, you ready? To provide for our legitimate necessities. God wills work that we, so that we can provide for our legitimate necessities. By working, we can provide for our legitimate needs. I want you to see this. When Adam and Eve sinned, now we're getting to the whole gainful, as in working for money. When Adam and Eve sinned, God did something. He cursed. When Adam and Eve chose to be their own lords, God imposed a condition of misery so that as long, he would show that as long as there is sin in the world, things are not as they should be. Watch what happens after the fall. You remember this story, right? They, they eat, Satan tempts them. We won't go into the whole thing. But after they eat from the forbidden fruit, the one thing God told them not to do, he said, you can eat from any tree in the garden and God just grows this delicious fruit and tree. You go do your meaningful, gainful vocation. If you get hungry, grab some fruit. God's providing it. And then we decided, no, we want to be our own lords. We want to be self-reliant. And Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the of the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge, good and evil. You remember that? And uh, what happens? They get called out on it. Adam, did you do this? Adam's like, the woman, right? The woman that you gave. You and the woman have a, have a lot to talk about. I'll be over here. Eve, is that true? Eve's like, I'm going to deal with you later. No, actually, it's the serpent, right? The serpent's fault, right? And so he doles out these curses. Look at the one at the end here. He said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. In other words, you, you were listening to other people, but you, knew, you didn't listen to my voice. You didn't listen to my voice, Adam. So the ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. Now, I want you to see this. In toil, you will eat of it. Okay, You'll, you'll get the thorns and thistles. Before the fall of man, God provided the food, a garden. After, you won't eat unless you sweat. Before the fall, God was the sustainer. You see that? That's why the essence of work, that's why the first point in this sermon was not so that you could keep yourself alive. No, 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 not in the beginning, not before the fall. The original design for work was God was the one who said, you know what, you know what? I'll make it my job to keep you guys alive. You just fill your life with meaningful, purposeful, creative activity. And when you get hungry, have a mango. I will keep this whole thing. This will be a smorgasbord. Remember, not that tree. Everything else, I will hook you up. All your physical needs, I got that. You just go, right? Can you imagine right now if tomorrow you no longer had to work? You'd be back in Genesis 1. Here's the thing. You would still work. But imagine what you would do. Imagine what you would do differently. You see? You would still work because you would get it. But some of you, out of nowhere, you would suddenly become like ballerina Lego cops. Because that's what you would do without pay. You get what I'm saying? 
Some of you would become hobbyists. Some of you have hobbies where you're like, man, if I could make a living out of doing this, I just can't get paid for my amazing cat paintings. <laughs> Whatever, right? It's because they're really not that amazing. Man, you understand? You, right? That's what you would do. You would still work. But that's what it was before the fall. When we decided, think about this, when we as humans chose to be self-reliant, the curse ultimately is God giving Adam and Eve exactly what they wanted. You don't want me as your provider? You don't want me as the boss? Okay. You're self-reliant, so if you want to stay alive, you make it. Now, I'm not going to make the ground such that nothing will grow, but I'm going to tell you, thorns and thistles will grow. You want bread? You're going to have to sweat for it. You're going to have to plow the field, and then you're going to have to seed the field with wheat or barley. You're going to have to make it grow out of the ground. You're going, to have to, you're going to have to then, after it grows, you're going to have to thresh it. Then you're going to have to grind it. Then you're going to have to knead it. Then you're going to have to start a fire so you can bake it. Then you'll be able to eat that bread. Man, before the fall, wasn't it good? You just remember that? That's gone. The curse, here's the point I'm making. The curse is not work. Work is good. The curse is is fallen work. It's the frustrations. It's the calamities. It's the stuff about work. You know, you went in, you went in to say law because you said, man, the Constitution is a living document and it has power and I can study the law and I can make a difference in, in creating a system of justice. And when you got to law, you realize it's just a lot, of, a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of headaches or something, right? It's that part. The work is good. The idea is good, right? Over and over you see examples of this. It's the petty politics. That's the thorn and thistles of work. It's the, you go to the fridge and somebody ate your lunch. Are you kidding me, right? It's Harry in accounting. That's the thorns and thistles. It's the salesman who is out on the road and he missed his connection in Minneapolis and he's stuck in some snowbound Motel 6, and he orders some Domino's pizza at 2 in the morning, which his cardiologist says is going to kill him, only to come back and have the accountant bust his chops because he forgot to fill out his expense report properly. Thorns and thistles, man. Respect the road warrior. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying? It's, your, it's, it's not it's not filling out your TPS report correctly. Didn't you get the memo? And now, here's the worst part. And now, all that frustration and the thorns and the thistles, now your lives depend on it. You get where I'm going with this? The work is good. After the fall, the work is cursed. This is fallen work. And on top of that, your life depends on it. Your life depends on you doing this fallen work. Now, now you might say, wait a minute. Hasn't the coming of Christ lifted that curse? Yes, but only partly. Think about the example of death. Death is a result of the fall. And Jesus, did Jesus coming, did his death, burial, and resurrection lift the curse of death? Yes, but we still have death. What did he do? He, re he removed the sting of death. And so too, Jesus has, has lifted the sting of work. He says things like, you know, seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and I'll take care of you. All these things will be added unto you. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. But the burden, the curse, endures to the end of this age, even though Christ has removed the sting. And that's why you can't just quit work and pick fruit from your neighbor's orchard. Right? Because the curse of that is still there. It's good. It's, we still see flashes of that goodness, and we still see thorns and thistles. But we can't just give up. We can't just say, well, Christ removed this thing of work, so now I, I can just be lazy. No, no, no. Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians. In fact, when we were with you, 
this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he shouldn't eat. For we hear there are some among you who walk irresponsibly, not working at all, but interfering with the work of others. So now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ that quietly working, they may eat their own food. He says, if anyone will not work, they will not eat. Listen to me carefully. Able-bodied people who can work, but choose instead to live off another man's sweat, are in rebellion against God. So, let's pause here just for a moment and reflect. This explains why we need work, why it's so good. If you have an understanding of Genesis 1 and 2, that work is good, work is fallen, you understand why some people are so naive about work and some people are so cynical about work. And what should we expect? What should you expect out of work? I have a feeling that my generation and my grandparents' generation would both sort of, sort of roll their eyes at each other. Here's what I mean. If I said to my grandparents' generation, who, who lived through the Great Depression, and you are lucky to have a J-O-B job, anything that puts food on your table. If I said to them, Grandma, a job should be, I don't know, fulfilling. I don't want to take any job. I need it to, like, I want to make meaning of my life and, I don't know, change the world. I think my grandma would say, right? She would roll her eyes. Like, are you kidding me? Like, put food on your table. On the other hand, I wonder if my generation would also, like, a job is nothing more than a paycheck. What if my generation would go, oh, I can't just be that, right? Well, here's what I would like, like to say. In a small way, they're both extremes, right? And a Christian understanding of work can keep you from either extreme. You should not be naive about work. It will not be, you're, in, a, in a fallen world, work will not be the thing that gives you ultimate fulfillment. And every day you go, you're just like, you have set your alarm to a ringtone. This is the day, this is the day. <sighs> right? I can't wait to glorify God today. I am part fever. I just, I want to go make something of the earth and subdue it, right? Every day is not going to be that, right? Why? Thorns and thistles, man. It's fallen world. And on the other hand, it's more than just the grind. It's more than just the, like the guy uh, James mentioned last week, seven years left. Like he's already clocked out. He's counting down seven years. Seems like a pretty long time to start winding up for, you know, I've quit. But you understand? It's, it's not either. You should expect work to occasionally be really fulfilling and occasionally be nothing but thorns and thistles. A realistic Christian understanding of work. Now, I remember the curse is that you won't eat. Some of you need to lower your expectations of work, especially if you're choosing a job. Some of you need to raise your expectations of work in case you're getting a little cynical. That's all. The curse is you, unless you sweat, you won't eat. But Proverbs 12 gives some hope. If you sweat, you will eat. Look, the one who works his land will have plenty of food, but whoever chases fantasies lacks sense. And that's true. That's a good general rule of thumb. If you work hard, you will eat. But that leads to number three. These last two should go pretty quickly, but number three there, point number three. Uh, this Proverbs twelve eleven thing, it's a rule of thumb. It's not absolute. You know why? Um, it is not an absolute truth that if you work hard, you'll have plenty. Um, that, that's not absolute. You know why? Because if you live in sub-Saharan Africa, you could sweat all day long, but grain is not going to grow out of that desert environment. If you live in a corrupt political system, like some of your compassion children that you sponsor, it doesn't matter. They could work, 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 and it's going to continue to be a cycle of poverty. If you're taking your rice to the market and you get hit by thieves, you sweat, you did your part, and it was taken from you. If you are disabled, 
your income generating power is less. It is not always true. And that's the third purpose for why God gives us work. It's not just to provide for your legitimate needs, but there are those who legitimately can't provide their own needs. I got three of them running around my house. Not the roach. The, he, the, the little kids, they can't. And so look what God gave me. He gave me a job wherein, watch this, point number three, to provide for others who cannot provide for themselves. God's given you a job, not just for your own W-2 and your own paycheck, but yes, part of biblical understanding of work is we can now provide, help provide, for those that legitimately can't provide for themselves. God has softened the curse of the thorns and thistles by giving us the command of love. You have the ability not just to earn for yourself, but to share. Real quick, 1 Timothy 5, he's talking about grandmas and widows in the church. And he says, if anyone doesn't provide for his own, that is his own household. Talking about his grandma, who doesn't have anybody, no pension, uh, widows. He's denied the faith, worse than an unbeliever. Paul was a tent maker. I know I'm skipping around this, Acts 20, 35. He's saying, I did this, why? It's necessary to help the weak. That word weak can also be translated sick. The idea is those who can't work. I'm here to help. And my favorite, Ephesians 4. What about thieves in Ephesus that get converted? Just turn them into businessmen and self-reliant people? Yeah, get them a job, but why? The thief must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands. This is my favorite part. So that he has something to share with anyone in need. That's gospel conversion. You've gone from taken, you're now going to be a giver. That's the work of God in a thief's life. And last point. So just to review, that we glorify God and enjoy working and enjoy him in our work. That we can, number two, meet the legitimate needs of our own life. Number three, meet the legitimate needs of those around us who need that help. And finally, and probably uh, most obvious, especially if you were here last week, to build gospel bridges that's the fourth point to build gospel bridges you work every day with those who do not know the good news that jesus christ does not hold their transgressions against them but salvation is offered full and free in the blood of the lamb you work with those people every day do not run from that god has done that on purpose god means it to be that way that's why First Thessalonians 4 says, you know, I encourage everybody to seek to live a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your own hands as we command you. Why? So that you may walk properly in the presence of outsiders. Another way to translate that is command the respect of the outsiders. And in this way, not be dependent on anyone. Living these things out will command the respect of those who are lost. Uh, I remember counseling. Uh, we have a lot of young people in our church. So a lot of what I do is uh, talk people out of seminary. Because here's what happens. They go to college and they get on fire for the Lord. And as they're getting on fire for the Lord, they, I don't know, start a Bible study in their college dorm. Or they start a Bible study among their friends. And they realize they're good at it. God's gifted them with this. And they see people get saved. And they go, I went to college to get my MBA, to go on to business school. I went to college pre-law. Yo, I, Tom, I was pre-med. But now what? I'm, I'm really good at this. So this is what they say. All my friends who are really into the sciences are going to med school. All my friends that are really into law are going to law school. All my friends that are really into finance are going to get their MBA. I guess I'm really into Jesus. So, like, my career path, I guess, should be seminary. Because that's like the grad school for Jesus people, right? And so what I always have to do is talk them out of that. And, and my line of reasoning always goes like this. There are some who, yes, unfortunately, have to go to seminary. Okay? But here's what happens. Imagine a soldier who's in the trenches, who loves the band of brothers, who's fighting a just and good fight, and he's good at it. 
okay? And he's good at it, and his friends tell him, hey, man, you're really good at this. You're really good at this. You should go back to the U.S. and go to soldier school and get, get, like, really good at soldiering and get a bunch of education. And then, man, think how much, like, that'll be a fulfilling life for you, whatever. So he's pulled out of the thing he loves, which is being in the trenches with his brothers. He's taken to the Pentagon. He's raised up. He becomes a general and does what? Sits behind a desk. And not even a general. That's a bad illustration. The one I always use is the quartermaster. Do you know what the quartermaster in an army is? It's the supply chief. Do they have enough boots? How many boots? Do they ha- are they equipped with enough bullets? Do they have enough rations, right? The guy gets lifted out of the trenches, which is what he loved. It's why he was into it in the first place. And made what? Made a quartermaster. I, in, in, in the army of the Lord, to press this weird illustration, I am the quartermaster. You're in the trenches. My job as a, as a pastor, make sure you got enough boots to get you through this week i got to make sure you got the right rations. But I don't get to be in the trenches. You know? If you're called to be a quartermaster, if that gets you excited, equipping the people to do the real work, I'll talk to you about seminary. But usually by then they're like, that sounds awful. I'm like, it is. Check, please. Right? And then they're off. They're good. They're done. They're done. I didn't get them all, though. I didn't get them all. And one that I lost... I just, I can't help but feel like, I'm not the Holy Spirit, and I don't know her, God's plans for her life. This was years ago. But she was in fashion. In New York, fashion. I mean, putting on these fashion shows, and was working for Vogue. And uh, she says to me, I've just had enough. This is such a lost and, and bad place to be in. And I'm just sick of all the lostness around me. And she's just on fire for the Lord, and she says, I'm, I'm going to go to Liberty and, I mean, it's a great school. Awesome. And uh, uh, she said, I'm going to go to Liberty. I'm going to transfer. I'm going to go down to Virginia and just, just quit all this world of fashion. Just get, you know, I'm done with this. And I begged her. I said, listen, God needs a witness everywhere. And you'll be, you'll be so good at Liberty. And you, yes, you'll be, you'll be great there. God's got his hand on you. That's fine. I'm not saying you're a failure. But what will we lose if you leave? Salt was not a flavor back in the day. Salt was a preservative, which means you only put it on stuff that was going to rot without you. And Christians should be drawn to places that it's not going to be okay without a Christian influence. Even in the court of the high priest, I don't care if you work at Vogue magazine, there's never as much evil as the court of the high priest in 30 AD, the people who put Jesus on the cross. Even in the court of the high priest, I had a, a mentor in college who told me, Tom, don't you see, when you, when you tell people, like, leave all this secular work and do something sacred, it's completely the wrong message. He really helped me reframe this. And I realized every job is a ministry. But he said, even in the court of the high priest, don't you know, he says, the, he thinks the reason, remember in the garden, they're coming again, and Peter's like, rah, and he cuts the dude's ear off because he missed, and he was bad at being a swordsman. And the guy's ear falls off, and, rah, and it's chaos. And Jesus is like, put away your sword. Come here, you. And he heals the guy's ear. His name was Malchus, and it's very clear, the Bible tells us, it was the high priest's servant. Anyway, this mentor tells me, he says, I believe that Jesus healed that guy's ear so that every day in the court of the high priest, he would have a witness. That every day he would come up to the man who, I mean, if obviously Jesus came to die, but if there's a human responsible for pulling the trigger, you could say it was Caiaphas, right? In In his very office, he would come every day and witness the redemptive and good work of Jesus, who he crucified. And the guy leaned back and he said, Tom, don't you wonder if maybe 
the high priest said, Malchus, when you enter the room, could, could you turn to the left? <laughs> but to be faced every day with Jesus' life, Jesus is real, Jesus is real deal. That's what some of you do. And you're building a gospel bridge in your work. Let me ask it the other way around. How many of you were furthered in your faith? Not by a neighbor, not by a minister. How many of you, it was a just informal survey, show of hands, how many of you were brought closer to God by a co-worker? Show of hands. Look at this. All over. You're going to be that co-worker for somebody else. You're going to build that bridge. And who's going to walk across it? The lost and the lonely. And that's you. And that's part of why God wills work. There's probably 30 more. But like I said, incomplete. We've got, we've got a series to cover this. I don't want that to get us excited about tomorrow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good news. We thank you for your redemptive work. That work was good. Work is fallen. And by your power, work is being restored in the lives of Christians. We are not building something in whatever work we do on a planet that's just going to burn up and be gone forever. But that we are building in anticipation of the new heaven, new earth. As you're setting the world to rights, we can be a part of bringing your kingdom here on earth in big and small ways each and every day. I pray, O oh Lord, for those who are in the trenches day in, day out, that they would work unto you. If they've been doing shoddy work and their pipes leak and their typing is bad and their meals are thoughtlessly prepared, grant new grace, fresh encouragement to those. If they're working to make a name for themselves instead of to bring you glory, grant fresh encouragement. For those that are just every day trying to survive, I pray, Lord, that they would have a realistic vision of what it means to work among thorns and thistles and put their hope ultimately in you and not find self-worth in a job. We thank you for all these things, you who are our Lord, our boss, Jesus. We're going to turn our attention now to the Lord's table. <clears throat> On the night Jesus was betrayed, the Bible says that he took some bread. And after he had given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, after supper, the Bible says Jesus took the cup, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He said that as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we know from the scriptures that our Lord's body was beaten. It was broken on Calvary's cross. And in doing so, our bodies can be redeemed and resurrected. We know that his blood was poured out on the cross. And we know that blood, just as it gives life to the body, that we can be enlivened, quickened by the Holy Spirit. And you may remember that in the curse of the thorns and thistles, you may remember when Jesus went to the cross, he was crucified with none other than a crown of thorns, as if to say, even the ground, even this curse will be undone. And he, he wants to redeem everything, not your church life, not your work life, not your love life. He wants all of it, everything. So all things are prepared for the people of God, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We invite you now to come. The ushers know how to get us up here. They'll be making moves and getting in position. We'll just follow their lead.
Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.